Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players, by trumpet players, and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoneman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell, and the plausibly present Brian Appleby Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by the World Trumpet Federation, quickly becoming the obvious choice for a fresh perspective, helpful hints, and the truth about trumpet. The World Trumpet Federation is home to the Open Bell podcast, helpful videos, and informative articles. And coming soon, merch. Trumpet fashion that will have everyone around you saying WTF. Visit www.worldtrumpetfederation.com for details, because if you don't, well, then you're just doing it wrong. And by Picket Brass and Blackburn Trumpets. For years now, so many of us have trusted our friend Peter Pickett to design and build the finest quality mouthpieces. He is a true craftsman of the highest order. Personally, I've been playing Picket Brass mouthpieces since 2009. Total game changer for me. And it has been very exciting to see Picket Brass grow to include Blackburn Trumpets, a brand that has been synonymous with quality and individual attention for years. And the latest out of Lexington, Kentucky, is the exciting news that now they're expanding that Blackburn tradition into their Picket dealer network. You can already visit Milano Music in Arizona and talk to Josh Whitehouse, and very soon you'll be able to go to Dillon Music in Woodbridge, New Jersey, as well as Rich Ida's Instrument Shop in Atlanta, Georgia. All this to say, Picket Brass and Blackburn Trumpet continue to grow, expand, and meet the needs of a discerning trumpet community. The future is promising at Picket Brass and Blackburn Trumpets. Do yourself a favor and check them out at www.picketblackburn.com. The Open Bell Podcast is comprised of three segments. Warming up, couple things, and no offense. We use these segments to cover information that we believe is vital to the proliferation of pedagogy, the propagation of professionalism, and the propulsion of Joey's blood pressure. Gentlemen, shall we? Today's segment of Warming Up is brought to you once again by Chop Saver Lip Care. I've become a believer. I've switched from that regular chemical-infested wax cylinder to refreshing and revitalizing Chop Saver. Made with all natural ingredients, you simply don't need to use it as often, and it's really good for your face. If you are not serious about lip care, you're doing it wrong. Try Chop Saver. Okay, Brian, what sort of innocuous, tightly wrapped yarn do you have for us today? <laughs> well, once again, it's about coronet. Oh, holy crap. So it's, it it's a little story, and then it's um, and then it's a question. Um, so uh, I was invited by uh, Tom Hutchinson, principal Trump, principal cornetist of the uh, Cory Band, and teacher at Royal Wealth Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, and his colleague Chris Turner, also cornet player, to do a master class um, last week for their students. It was like fifteen students, and we planned for a couple hours. Um, virtual, of course, and um, so they had eight students play, and it was it was a real hoot. It, um, of course, they were all decked out in their, um, you know, they had all their tech set up in their individual rooms, um, and they all knew how Zoom was supposed to work. So it was, I mean, it was all totally professional, and they played great. So I heard first year students, I heard th- third year students. So it's a three year program there for the undergraduate degree. Um, and it was it was totally killing. Um, and so let me just tell you the pieces they played. Um, so two people played um, the concert piece by Kernow, 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one person played the uh, cor- concert scherzo, the Artunian concert scherzo. Mm-hmm. Somebody played Boza Caprice. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so he played this uh, this uh, crazy cornet p- uh, piece called Harley Quinn. Mm. Um, somebody played the uh, Jubilance. Mm-hmm. Somebody played Russian Dance, and then of course somebody played um, Song and Dance. Nice. So it was everybody was amazing, and um, you know I, I always joke in in master classes that students will play, and a teacher will make so many comments, a bunch of comments, and the student will play again. It sounds great. Second time always sounds great. And it's just because it's the second time. It's not because the teacher said anything. Mm-hmm. So um, the problem was these guys played so well, they really didn't need a second crack at, <laughs> at stuff. <laughs> so we really quickly got to like musical nuance and some ideas about inflection and, and lining up time. Um, but listening to the trumpet pieces made me think on cornet, like everybody played We're, cornet. That's what I was going to ask. They were all everybody, on cornet. Everybody was on cornet, so um, it was it was startlingly good um, from everyone, um, and really fun to listen to. Um, but so since I'm really adamant about playing cornet pieces on cornet, mm-hmm. should we be equally as adamant about playing trumpet pieces on trumpet? I, I've never been happier than I am at this, this exact moment. So good that this landed on you. It has. <laughs> You finally come home. It's come, <laughs> I just love it that it came home to roost. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, I think when when the piece was written for the trumpet, then yeah, if we're gonna say cornet pieces belong on cornet, then trumpet pieces belong on trumpet. I think it really is that simple. And there and, can be lots of things that could go both ways. Yeah. Well, sometimes it says it, right? Right. Well, so let's say rose variations. Robert Russell Bennett for trumpet or cornet. Biche for variations, trumpet or cornet. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take that a step further, which Thank is you. further. You're Thank welcome. You. Uh, Ketting and Trotta conceived for trumpet and C. Right. Or horn. Or horn, right. Or horn, yeah. Per, yeah it says trumpet Persa, or horn. Persichetti parable conceived for trumpet and C. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, although something like the barat on Dante and Scherzo, on Dante and Allegro, is that the one? I've always hated that piece. And I heard, I heard, I mean, hated it. And I, I heard Tom Hutchinson play it on cornet. I was like, oh, that's a beautiful piece. <laughs> totally turned me around. <laughs> to be fair, I think most things that Tom plays will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't. He, he plays great. I don't think the piece matters so much. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, but the Boza was fascinating on cornet. And so was the Artunian. When huh. you say fascinating, what do you mean? It kind of works. Really? Yeah, it kind of worked. Yeah, it kind of worked. The student had a, um, they made a semi-bright sound for cornet on the Artunian. It was, Were it was fine. Were they any equipment to do that? No. Um, it, was, it wasn't quite meaty enough. Like, it didn't have enough for me on that piece. It didn't have enough grit. Um, and it didn't come, you know, that piece, there's a lot of stuff that can come out of the texture really well. And then back in, there's a, a bunch of contrast that I like. Um, but I, but I thought it was, imp- I thought it was impressive that it still worked. Yeah. No. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't, how much time do they spend playing trumpet? Zero. Yeah. It's a trumpet program and a cornet program. In parallel, separate. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah. It's very French. It's very French. <laughs> they would never say that. No, they would never say that. <laughs> yeah, same was true at um, at Huddersfield Uni when I was um, taking lessons with Phil McCann. Mm-hmm. People were cornet players or they were trumpet players. A few people did did both. And a lot had to do with how you were brought up. So, like, some people surprisingly didn't come up in brass bands. They started on the trumpet. Yeah. Which was, you know, I found it, was, it seemed unusual, the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Yeah, for there, for sure. Yeah, because you think of all the youth bands and brass banding that it would just be cornet. Yeah. Just but it was it was really cool. And, and yeah. uh, everybody's really nice. And it was it was amazing. We went went way over time. And it was it was just a blast. It was great to see uh, Tom and to to meet Chris. And boy, the students played like crazy. It was yeah. it was great. I mean, the, a lot of these students are literally in their first semester of college, and they're right. just playing the spots off stuff. Man, I love. Thanks for sharing the rep too. It's all, always on the lookout, right? For to, you always want to know what someone else is doing, and it's yeah, that, that's a great list. Yeah, uh, Joey, what do you have for us? I want to talk to you guys about our left hands while we're playing. Mm-hmm. Right, so. I think one of the only arguments uh, Barbara Butler ever just said, fine, whatever, was in how to hold the trumpet when I was an undergrad. She was talking about holding the weight of the trumpet in the right hand so that you could manipulate the slides with your left hand, especially when you're going to play like a low F. Now, Barbara is a considerably smaller person than I am. (laughs) So when I said, really? But she goes, well, if you're going to, I said, I've always been taught hold the weight in the in the left hand so your fingers are free to manipulate the balance she goes well then how would you play a low f and i went dee da da ball and i just boom holding it like i normally hold i can hold the first and the third slides without adjusting and she says okay fine but it got me thinking about this as i've been you know we all deal with students of many shapes and sizes which finger goes in the third valve ring oh boy <laughs> here we go Seriously. Go ahead. Go ahead. For, well, I would say for most students, I find that the ring finger is the best option. But again, it's based on the student size. I, I had a student in Texas and she had these really tiny hands. And actually, we took took the horn to the local shop at that point and got the rings moved on the instrument, like actually brought over to the side so that her fingers could go in there and she could manipulate the slides. But But I think probably the vast majority it's the ring finger in the third valve slide. Brian, yeah. what do you think? Yes, I would, I would agree for the vast majority, unless you're doing the pistol grip and then what is it? I was going to get middle, there. Middle, middle, <laughs> right. fing, middle finger, right? But yeah, no, I, I always thought, thought the pistol grip, because I, I mean, my hands are large. I, I remember, I remember seeing, I don't remember who I saw, but it was a professional band when I was in eighth grade and I saw these trumpet players and one of the trumpet players was holding with his middle finger, in the ring Mm. so two fingers on top of the third valve slide and two fingers below the third valve slide yeah and i thought huh and the next day my practice room went in and went wow that's so much more comfortable because that was you know the year i I shot up to six feet when i was 12 years old it was like oh so my uh, my hands are considerably larger and they it always felt a little like to fit them all in yeah yeah that way i made that switch that day and have never looked back but that does get us to the pistol grip, which was the both underneath where there's literally, you know, no mm-hmm. ring, no fingers in the ring up top. And there are people that hold that way for a specific grip or angle to get the horn to their face. And there have been horns made 
made now and way in the past with that ring underneath the third valve slide for just that reason i've seen that yeah to hold that down there right mm-hmm. i found that to be much more unusual and frankly really physically uncomfortable for me personally yeah I, yeah you know a few years back i know you guys are going to remember this and find a way to bust my chops about it but i had some neck issues shoulder issues and um and but at that point rheumatism (laughs) that wasn't it but i switched from holding what's called the traditional grip to the pistol grip all the time and that alleviated the pressure uh, that i was feeling in my neck it just moved my arm just enough to create a better position to play yeah because i'm always looking for you know the the most comfortable way that that works right you want you don't want to be well, I have to do it this way, even though it doesn't work for me. And, and, you know, we're all different shapes and sizes. But, boy, I found for the large-handed people, you know, if you're taller, I see so many people that are tall or uh, especially lanky, like you see people mm-hmm. with long arms and stuff, you know. <laughs> and it looks like they've almost tied themselves up in a little bit of a pretzel to play. And I'm like, wow, it, I don't think it has to be like that. You no. feel easy while you're playing. And I think any of that, I've seen some some folks i had a student this year come in who his thumb was so far in that it brought the back of his hand up which meant his left shoulder was higher and i'm sorry but all that finds its way out the bell (laughs) exactly all that tension not cool um but so i want to ask you though like when you really need to use a lot of pressure then (laughs) (laughs) hold on let me let me let me stop you right there And then what about your right hand? Are you using the octave key with your pinky? Well, we, you... we, I think it was Terry Warburton who first talked about putting handlebars on the trumpet itself. Jeez. <laughs> and, and just grab on. I feel like I told the story here before, so stop me if I repeated. But one of my teacher, my teacher, Kevin Eisensmith, said that when he was in the military, there was a guy that played in his section that used so much pressure that one day had the pinky ring hooked yeah. with the right hand and it broke off and yeah. he knocked himself out. Yeah. Right to the ground. Yeah. That's that, that would be too <laughs> much pressure. That's a sign. Let's that's just call the, it a sign, an indicator. It's an indicator. Exactly. You, you want to keep your eye on that one. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think a lot of times these are one of those things like we just don't think about it because well, you're supposed to hold it this way and you start playing when you're 10 and well, this is how you're supposed to do it. How you're supposed to, how to do it. That might change. Those things yeah. might need to evolve, and it's something worth giving a little bit of thought to. Yeah. So what do you got for us, Bill? Well, so today I want to talk about, I want to mention a name um, that I, I may have mentioned before, but I'm going to zero in on it a bit, and the name is Leo Potts. Leo Potts did a clinic. My The last class that I took at North Texas was a summer conducting symposium. Go ahead, I'll wait. 1895. Yes, it was. <laughs> It's fifth year of the institution's existence. <laughs> and you were, that's when you started with the turtlenecks or did you have, yes. to, have to have that? Was it on the we, syllabus? We wove them ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You sheared the so, sheep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Leo did, did a clinic there. Gene Corp brought him in, had him in to do this clinic. And he was a studio musician from LA, right? Played a lot of, a lot of great stuff. And he said a couple of things that really had an impact on me. First, he told a story about getting called to a session. He's a woodwind guy. And he gets there and realizes there's alto flute on the session, and he doesn't have one. Didn't That's know. not good. Called his wife and said, take all of our credit cards. <laughs> Go to this music store at this corner of this corner. There's an alto flute there. You pay the man what he needs for it, and you bring it to me at this address as quickly as you can. And she said, you know, how much is it going to be? And he told her, and she said, we cannot afford to do that. And he said, no, 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 we can't afford not to. 
bring me you know bring me the instrument so which i thought was fascinating at a peek and into that culture divorce yeah. papers yes with the <laughs> with the alto flute yeah. so but the other thing is that this is the guy that started me on the note grouping journey oh. he's, he's the one that in that clinic said he's never read on a session or anything never read more than two notes at a time never considered more than two notes at a time. And the, from the instant he said that, I've been like, oh my gosh, it changes the way you think about music and about seeing it. No matter how many are grouped together and what's going on, he's, he's dissecting to that degree. So, and I know we've talked about him before and we've talked about note grouping here recently. So I went looking and I found him and we've started up a conversation again on Facebook. Where is he? Um, he's out in California. So, um, so we're now we've kind of had a couple of back and forth and we're going to plan a zoom session and get together. So he said, in the meantime, before we can connect, here's something for you to think about. Rhythm is the music in music. Hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I, I may want to fight know, with you about that. That's okay. I understand what he's saying and he's got some really interesting perspectives on things, but yeah. rhythm is the music in music i think he's meaning that it's the life in it but two notes at a time <clears throat> oh you want to go back to that oh well, yeah. yeah oh yeah <laughs> processing two notes at a time beautiful wow that seems harder than it needs to be i when you're teaching something i just use this as much as i hate to admit it upstairs in my own house not long ago with my son who might be behind schedule on learning a piece on a saxophone <laughs> and he's might on, or might not he's on his schedule it's he's on, <laughs> on the schedule what he's on his fine. schedule it's probably going to work out i have confidence in him yeah so i was applying some of this note grouping stuff so he's looking at it and i i did the thing i always do brian would appreciate this i drew the lines here and i drew the lines there and i, I circled these two and that and i and i did it and i and so it came together very quickly for him and he, he played it down tempo. And I had him do it down tempo a few times without grouping in mind. And then I said, do you think you understand? I said, yeah. So I gave him a new tempo, surprised him and said, let's go. Boom, boom, boom. He went right through it, blazed through the first eight bars and looked at me smiling and said, okay, that's magic. <laughs> so in but terms of teaching and groups, learning. You're doing that in mm -hmm. groups of two? Sometimes, you sometimes do more than that. I have expanded, but it, that was the ah, beginning. But that was the beginning. by saying and well, yeah. more than two. That's, that's the he, argument I'm having, and you said you've already gone more than that. That's what he said. That's what started me down this journey of no grouping mm -hmm. or down this path of no grouping. So, but, but uh, I'm yeah. going to say it needs to be more than two. Well, I do. I depending on what it is. I not do always, more. and it can be only one. It, it might be, be one, but I'm saying I need the, I need to be allowed to group in more than two. Well, yes, it, depend, it depends. On, yeah, you can, but it depends on how you slice it. Are you slicing it due to harmony, due to the overtone series, due to strong beats, well, fingering on the patterns? Exactly. So yeah, but that's it's why open I want to, more than essentially a binary but, system of one or two. He, I think the example he gave was so a long tuplet run, right? At you know a septuplet or something, and went in and circled those two, and we went. Everyone in the room went. Oh, you just, you just popped. You just see it. It cleaned up immediately. Yeah. So, but anyway, cool thing is that for all the fault of all the social media and all the stuff going on, I actually used it to find this guy and kind of reconnect. That is cool. And yeah. so it's, it's really cool. So I'm, I'm really anxious to talk with him about some more pedagogy stuff. So that's the good part of the internet. Yeah, it is that. <laughs>
Hey, well, more exciting news from the internet because people can reach out to us. We've got Open Bell Mailbag to get Yay. through today. All right. Very exciting. Very. All right. Email number one, Open Bell Mailbag. I'm a longtime admirer, first-time emailer. Joey, please check my hyphen usage and get back to me. I have three questions, <laughs> one for each of you. Brian, I recently purchased a vintage Martin Imperial Cornet for $185 to add to my herd of Martin horns. As a jazz player, I try to stay away from horns that play easily, and this one certainly fits <laughs> that mold. <laughs> it would. Good decision or bad decision. Also, I haven't owned a flugelhorn for two years. Thoughts on just puffing my cheeks and using the cornet to replace my long gone flugel? I would like in on the second half of that question. <laughs> so let's answer Brian's question first, and then we'll we'll go on to mine. It's jealous. never a bad idea to buy a cornet. There well it done. is. <laughs> there it is. And uh, Joey, I know you want to comment on the cheek puffing and flugelhorn substitution. Yeah, go buy a flugelhorn. <laughs> <laughs> You know you want one. And uh, Martin, make a, Martin more, make a cornet? A flugel? More horns is, is always better. Yeah. And, and plus one. Bill's That's, rule, and plus one. And plus, and one. plus one. The amount of trumpets you have, plus one. All right, um, this one's for me. Bill, on a scale of one to ten, one being an unearned downhill, and 10 being a 50-mile ride that's uphill where the man with the hammer is waiting to punish you, how difficult is it to come up with your opening insult of Brian every week that signals the <laughs> beginning of warming up? Now, would you call that an insult or just a, you know? I don't know. I think it's a creative there we go. introduction. Yeah. Uh, so to answer your question, I'm third in line on a group ride going slightly downhill with a tailwind. <laughs> I don't invest a lot of time. <laughs> Uh, it and, just comes to him easily. <laughs> Joey, uh, here's your question. I asked Brian two questions up top, so it turns out I don't have anything for you. Thanks a bunch. <laughs> James from West Virginia slash Pittsburgh. Bill can explain why being from both of these places is possible. Of course, this is our <laughs> no, good friend, Dr. James Moore. The doctor. We love James Moore. Gee, and the answer awesome. is you could take the boy out of Western Pennsylvania, but you can't take Western <laughs> Pennsylvania out of the boy. <laughs> uh, All right. Email number two. Hey, guys, I like you, and especially Joey, love backboard bingo. That game is flawless, and the point system is superb. However, I can't help but wonder how the other half of Trombomundi would do versus you fine gentlemen. Oh, my. So oh. many questions. Will Scott, have, will Scott have any questions in the staff? Will you need an interpreter for JC? Anyway, as always, I look forward to hearing your answers on this, in addition to more of your cylindrical wisdom topped with conical nonsense. <laughs> your brother in brass and one of your six original listeners, Victor from Aston, Pennsylvania. Wow. <laughs> All right, let's get right to the question here. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. if we're talking about a team where it would be the three of us against the three of them. No I mean, shot. Yeah, no shot. I think, no we shot. Know, I think we know how no that shot. goes. Nope. But uh, if JC did have the right translator, I think he might might do fine. You know, just like any game, you get the right categories. You know, if we get into you know into you know European history, JC right. might be able to run that category JC, straight down. He might be able to do that because yeah, and that's if we, his and history. And if we had a we had a you know sarcastic <laughs> lip slur category, that would be Scott. Scott would own right? that. And if we um, had I, a music, a, a, music of the desert, uh, you know, or, John would be right on that. Or John, <laughs> I think if we had a category, adult beverages, <laughs> John could 
right? I don't know. JC might be able to compete fairly well in that. <laughs> in that category. Yeah. All right. Uh, next email. Gentlemen, congrats on a great podcast. It quickly earned a spot in my regular rotation, and I'm an orchestra guy. I have an observation and a question. First, the observation. Have you ever noticed that Penn Gillette from Penn & Teller and Joey Tartell sound a lot alike? I was just listening to Penn on This American Life and had to do a double take. Which begs my question. Have you ever seen Penn & Teller at a Trombomundi performance? Yeah, I didn't think so. And now you know why. (laughs) Tim from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Wow. The Pennsylvania contingent is strong this week. Very strong this week. Well, now I am actually a a Penn and Teller fan, so uh, I'll take the compliment. But I will say I think the only real similarities uh, between me and Penn is that we're tall, dark-haired guys who like jazz. Uh, (laughs) Aside from that, (laughs) as he's an amateur bass player. um, Ah. Wow. No, I wish I, 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 I... I think Tim's onto something here. I trust his ears. I think <laughs> I do. You think he has I'm great? Pendulet. He has great ears. I think you, he does a great ears. I think you sound kind of like him. I what, don't hear it, but now you know. it, it could possibly be that you're talking and Brian is sitting there doing nothing as Teller. That might be <laughs> tipping the scales a little bit. <laughs> There's our dude. There it is. You're the pen and Teller of trumpet. I love you, this idea. <laughs> This is great. That's perfect. This is yeah. a great Yeah, that's a good bit. Oh. So, Tim, thanks for your email. Uh, we'll be sending you a You're Doing It Wrong t-shirt in the mail just for sending your email in. So, thanks. All right, boys. It's time for a couple of things. Well, we've devoted a segment to The Thing which focused on Joey's approach to practice and maintenance. We then devoted an episode to Body Center Breathe and Flow, an approach that yours truly has developed to cover the fundamentals and bring consistency to playing. So today we've carved out some time to talk about Brian's pedagogy, and we can hardly wait to see what New Jersey's premier pedagogue has in store for us today. (laughs) Brian, you may take the field in competition. (laughs) Yeah, I have my armor on today. For all the bullets, I don't, bullets I don't, and arrows. I don't know how you feel, but Joey and I are very excited. We've been texting yeah. about this all day. <laughs> We've been planning for weeks. <laughs> yeah, so um, we get to my pedagogy. And um, so I guess I ask myself the question is, um, do we want to play the trumpet well as the end goal? Or do we want to play, we want to be a musician who plays the trumpet well? And for me, the answer is we want to be a musician who plays the trumpet well. And so this idea of how I teach and how I play the instrument, how I play music on the trumpet or cornet um, really started all the way back in eighth grade um, when my new trumpet teacher, a guy by the name of Carter Eggers, who was the teacher at um, Eastern Michigan University for about, I think it was well over 40 years, um, he taught there. And uh, in a very early on lesson, he said to me, you need to get the inner game of tennis. You need to buy that book and everything that we do in here will be sort of based. Actually, he actually had me get the um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that Mm -hmm. book also. Um, And uh, and then proceeded to talk about um, playing the instrument, playing music based on those principles. 
the biggest principle was that if you're thinking about how the instrument works physically, if you're thinking about how your abs work, how your corners work, how your tongue works, how your chops are functioning in the mouthpiece, if you're thinking about blowing the instrument, um, that's distracting you from, it's, it's getting in your way and it's distracting you from your major goal, which is making music. Um, now there are a lot of gaps, I think, in, in that thinking. Um, but I, I've come around. So then I went through all the way through high school studying with him and I went to Oberlin and studied with Gene Moorhead Libs and Tony Plogue and Byron Pearson. And then the last couple of years I stayed with Jim Darling and, and Al Couch. And in the meantime, I'd studied with a bunch of other people, like I studied with Gatala. Um, and a lot of those people talked about air and wind. Um, and I want everybody to remember that the speed of sound is somewhere around 756 miles per hour. And we can blow somewhere around 30 or 40 miles per hour. So we're not actually blowing the sound through the trumpet. And that while that may be a pretty good metaphor for young people about getting air going, and I'm not saying that we don't use air to play the instrument. Um, I think that using that as a basis for making music is maybe um, a way that is not, for a lot of people, not the most natural way of playing the instrument or finding out the natural, most natural way of playing. So I have this other idea and it comes from um, Edwin Gordon, mm. music ed, music ed person. Now you're talking. Which is this huge idea about <laughs> audiation. And so Gordon says that um, audiation is the foundation of musicianship. And that singing is the foundation of audiation. So when I was in eighth grade, Mr. Eggers used to talk about singing um, and using that as where your mental game was. Everything that I was thinking was consumed by thinking about my voice. And so when I'm playing, um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to imagine in my brain the dynamic, the tone quality, I speak the articulation in my head and the, um, and the pitch that I'm trying to generate. Now, I understand that not everybody, quote, audiates. They're not actually singing along in their head as they play. Um, and so I'm not sure that it has to happen for everyone. But Gordon's idea of audiation is that anytime you can conceive of how music sounds by seeing it or remembering it, you're audiating, you're creating that in your brain. And I think on some level, everybody does that. So like I've talked to Joey about this and Joey doesn't sing along as he plays, but he knows how that note sounds. Mm -hmm. And so I think actually underneath there, that is happening. You guys are having questions already. It's cool, we can- No, yeah. it's good. Okay, all right, cool. We're just giving, giving you time to, you know, cool. put it all so, out there. So, um, so I think that's a big part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to myself and I'm trying to get my students to put their mental focus on something other than how the body is functioning, like consciously not thinking about how, the, or I'm trying to get them to not think about how the tongue is working, how the abs are working, how the chest is working. 
Although in the inner game, they do talk about being aware. So I had a student one year, um, she called it um, being a third party impartial observer. So as she's playing, she would step outside herself to watch and to listen. But while she was playing, she was concentrating on what her voice was saying. Um, so this has a lot of implications. Um, and um, I do have a lot of technical, physical things that I talk about. Because I frankly come across with a lot of students who need a lot of help and just having them sing is not the answer. Um, like if you have a dysfunctional embouchure, then singing, you know, using that model is not really going to help. You have to get the structure correct. And I've changed a lot of embouchures. Um, but I think, uh, and I've had a, I had a student recently who um, I was asking them to sing. They were all set up fine. They're making a good sound, had great, excellent time. They had the pitch was solid. Um, and it was just so much flatlined playing. And I said, you know, you have to sing while you play. And they were like, I am singing. That's the thing I'm concentrating on. And I said, could you sing out loud how you're doing it? And they sang it and it was flatlined musically. <laughs> I said, I said, Oh, you have to sing with musical inflection. You, they went, you, Oh, right. It's like the problem is you're trumpet playing. You're a terrible singer. Right. <laughs> so you're doing yeah. what I asked. You suck as a singer. <laughs> so um, yeah, and I also don't think you have to be a great singer or you have to be able to sing in time. But I think that we get okay, to our most natural. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, your voice, your vocal instrument, presumably, it, it, um, we're playing trumpet because it's not a great instrument. Like I don't have a great vocal instrument. Um, so, uh, but I think we get to musical inflection much faster if that's our, if a vocalist is our model or if we're actively singing or thinking about a string player, but you hear over and over again, you have to sing on the instrument. And I think, I think that's right. I think it, I actually take it farther. Further. In that, further. Well, okay. Further that I'm, I'm actually brutal. physically, brutal. To, I'm actually physically trying to. Um, place my mental um, voice higher in a falsetto range rather than trying to blow from my gut. So I'm not trying to sing chest voice. So there are a couple things about this. Um, I was at a, a vocal master class um, a couple of years ago, and uh, the master class was talking about falsetto, the falsetto register. And um, turned out there were it was a it was a weekend master class, and the vocal division only I think one singer came and one professor and then i came with two trumpet students so there were more trumpet students in the room <laughs> uh, which was really fascinating and um and so this this guy is doing this class on the false on falsetto and he said um to make a great sound as a singer you have to use your chest voice and your head voice um and those two things have to combine to make a great sound as a vocalist the problem is that they exist on two different parts of the nervous system and they can't function consciously at the same time the head voice is um uh, is located on the part of the nervous system that is swallowing um, so you drink a glass of water and the chest voice is is the part of the nervous system that deals with breathing and so you can't do those things at the same time you can't take a drink of water and breathe at the same time right and so he said you can't actually me can please but don't it's try probably, no, don't um, disclaimer so um and so these two things have to be done subconsciously 
So vocalists tend to give a lot of imagery to their students. Um, and there's a lot of projection and the vocal masks and the sound goes up instead of, uh, and they're not thinking about wind. They take a big breath and there's a lot of quote support, but they're not thinking about wind. Um, and they're thinking about other things other than the physical to get this to coordinate. And I think this works a lot on the trumpet. There's a, um, really interesting um, amount of research that was done that's being done um, out at UNLV on golf as a woman named Gabriella Wolf and she's done an amazing amount of um, what research on motor learning which is sort of what we're doing right Um, so just this other part of it so just for me there's the musical part which is always the goal Um, and I think singing is the fastest way to get there and using that model But then there's also the physical, like we're training a machine to do things. And so she talks about what motor learning is, how it happens, and how it takes place. And I think it's just um, scientifically based reinforcement of the inner game idea. So um, if you haven't read The Inner Game of Tennis, it's a really important book um, in terms of um, motor learning and how, how people should teach and how people should think about how they're doing things. But her research, all kinds of of really interesting things, but one of the things that her research discovered was um, based on where you imagine, where you're putting your mental focus um, when you're doing, hitting a drive in golf. So they did this research where they um, brought in a bunch of um, regular players, uh, amateur players, college players, and professionals. And then they went through the group asking them to think about different things when they were golfing. So, for instance, um, they asked players to think about their arms through the stroke, right? So as they're doing the, the swing, they wanted them to concentrate on where the arm arc was, how the arms felt. And then the next, and then a part of, next part of the group, they want them to think about where their hands are um, in, this, in the stroke. And then the next group, can you think about... How, what your club, the, the shaft of the club is doing through the swing. And then the next group, can you think about um, where the ball is, how the ball's trajectory is leaving the tee when you swing? And then the last, last thing was, can you imagine during the whole stroke where the ball is going to land? Um, and at every level, um, the people who, were, who had the smoothest st- swing, had the best results, were the people who could think farther away from their body. Well done. Uh, so, um, so I think, and, and that the, the, the better off, the better player they were, the more um, distal they could think and the more successful. So for us, a professional thinking about the sound in the back of the hall is great um, for a seventh grader thinking about the sound in the back of the hall probably not as good, but maybe the sound at the bell or in the lead pipe. Um, and so it's a way to get away from the body. And, uh, and I think it's really important that, and in my teaching, I, I think about both what the body's doing very specifically, but also getting you away from thinking about what your body is actually doing. It's simply the, the act of playing or playing golf or playing the trumpet or cornet is that if you are flexing certain muscles on purpose to play, that you're actually also 
flexing muscles that are directly in opposition to those muscles. Antag you trigger antagonistic muscles. And just for the fun of it, you also trigger ancillary muscles around that are also activated for no good reason other than they, they want to get in on the fun. So if we want to be in a place that's the most natural, the most relaxed, and the most musical, that projecting outside of our bodies is probably the best, the best thing to do. Um, and so this is, for me, giving the conscious mind something to do. Um, and so for me, it's thinking about the voice really vividly. For some people, it's colors. So I've had some students who... Um, if they think about a color coming out of their bell or of a hot spot on the instrument there, it's a much more resonant sound. It's the same thing as you were talking about um, the student in a, in a lesson with Schluter who stood on their mm -hmm. other foot, you know, right. and then all of a sudden the playing is spectacular. <clears throat> it's because the brain is thinking about something else. If you go back to the inner game of tennis, the ego is not in the way. The conscious mind is out of the way. The subconscious mind knows how to do everything. Um, and so then, for me, it also spawns a whole other idea about how you get better, how you learn um, techniques that you're not good at, how you learn high notes, how you learn multiple tonguing, um, how you learn um, flexibility. Well, that's easy. You're just born with that, right? <laughs> right. Yes, Isn't exactly. That, so, pretty sure that was it. Right. I, we, we, we've covered talent. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so the idea is, like, I'm more than willing to um, use a whole host of sort of outside-of-the-box practice techniques as a way to get past my mental hang-ups with certain things. So, um, you know, like using a burp or, use, or just... Um, doing a buzzing on the mouthpiece as a way to get my brain out of, to snap it out of some hang up. So I have a lot of students who have a ton of success doing the first four um, exercises out of the Jim Thompson buzzing, buzzing method. Now, I don't like them to read the whole preamble. I'm not a fan of the preamble because I think it's very physical mm -hmm. and not musical. But I think the way the first four exercises are presented and what they require of a pe player can get them in a very different physical place with air, with lip tension, with tongue position, um, just by doing those exercises um, and playing along with the accompaniment. So I also think it's pretty important to do those with the accompaniment because the brain is occupied doing something else other than thinking um, physically. One thing, um, Scott Belk talks about practicing with a practice mute and earplugs. And that's a totally different physical and aural position to be in. Um, and that can snap you out of some habits that um, physically that get you involved in, in how you make the sound physically. Um, a book like um, The First Trumpeter, Trumpeter by Jimmy Maxwell mm -hmm. is a great book. Um, I think all of the interesting stuff is halfway through the book when he talks about the, his systemless system. I think one of the most interesting things mm -hmm. he talks about is when you're learning a, a different technique, 
and I guess this this is one of the, the my major points too is that you're not saddled with the technique or the range or the endurance that you currently have. You can change it um, through diligent practice. But he says practicing on the mouthpiece is critical because putting the trumpet in front of your face is such a powerful visual stimulus that your body, no matter how much you ask it not to, will default into um, certain habits. Can for some people, right? So this is not univ none of this is universal. Um, it's just super helpful. So one of the things that um, another thing that I found very helpful is this Cat Anderson Whisper G. Um, I don't think it's the answer for everyone, but it does if you can do it correctly and you're hard-headed enough like me to f to do it for as long as I have. It has opened up some range, some notes, and some flexibility things that I never had before. And for some of my students, it has changed the pressure they used. It has changed their relationship to the air. They're not pressing nearly as much air. Um, and it's relaxed their face a lot. And I will say that... Um, there are a couple other exercises that, that are super helpful like this. John Faddis recommended to one of my former students um, his super soft arpeggiations where he would play um, root third, fifth, flat seven, and seven octave as softly as you can play, starting on low C, doing the, doing the arpeggiation, not really caring about the quality of sound. And so, and then going up by half step as a way to snap the player out of the idea that you have to use power to get out of the staff. So a different way to approach um, the upper register than playing with from a place of place of strength and power and then ratcheting back the effort level over time. Um, so just a different take on it. Um, let me see what else I'm I'm missing out. So even things like I w will ask my students to do exercises like the breathing gym. The reason is because I think most of them have, not most of them, many of them have had the issue that they are not aware of how much air they need to take in. And I'm not a huge wind guy, but I do ask all my students to be Rumpelstiltskin. So they breathe in air and they're turning it around as tone, not more air because I don't think blowing on the instrument is making music. Explain the Rumpelstiltskin yeah, reference, please. So turning, st turning straw into gold. There we go. Oh. <laughs> okay. Just want to make sure it's clear to everybody yeah, listening. Sorry. There we go. Turning, okay. turning, turning uh, straw air into, into gold. Air into sound, not air into gold. more air. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, it's not not more not air into more air. Absolutely. Um, there, are, there are a couple things, a couple of physical things that I'd like to talk about that are weird for me. So um, the first one is how little air it actually takes to make the instrument go. So um, I encounter a lot of people who are just blowing too damn hard. Um, and I play, as you know, loudly. Um, but I also like that's, to play... That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be a better way to say that that really portrays what it is. <laughs> I have felt the sound, Joey. Yeah, you can, you, you can actually feel it, it in your feet. Yeah, in, your feet. in yeah. your feet. Yeah, like if you've ever been in an earthquake. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, like a, that. Maybe like a three point four. I mean, it's not going to like knock more stuff of a, off the shelves. No, but, but it's definitely a, things are moving. It's a healthy tremor. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what it sounds like is I'm moving a ton of air, 
but I'm actually not trying to move any air. I'm only trying to sing super loudly through the instrument. Now, there, I am moving air, and my body is reacting. It's the same way as if you were to shout. Um, the trigger is you want to shout at someone, and your body makes this motion that results in this loud dynamic. You don't say, I want to shout, so I'm going to make my body do this thing. So it's how the trigger works. So that's the first thing. The second one is um, how loose the middle of the chops can be um, for, I think, most of the register. And the when I was relaxing my chops more above high C, that's when the notes started to come out. Now, that uh, also helped that I, I was... Would, I would contend all of the register, as loose as possible, would yeah, work right. for the entire Yeah, register. so I think, that's, right. I think that's right. And And it also happened to be that I was actually, when I met, when I started playing in trombone for the first time, we had our first thing, and we started talking about upper register, and it dawned on me, not only that Joey was playing a very different game than I had ever knew existed, <laughs> known existed, but it's how much time they were devel devoting to the upper register and that focus, and then a systematic approach to that. And I just thought, like, well, I mean... Hey, you just got to, you either have it or you don't have it. You got to press and blow or, you know, you got to work really hard for it. You do have to work really hard for it. But in terms of time, <laughs> you don't have to pull a muscle. Um, and you shouldn't pull a yeah, muscle. Yeah, there are, there are people who believe that having a, getting a hernia is a badge of honor when you're trying to play high notes or loud. And that's just insanity. Um, and so I, so I, so that, how loose the middle of the chops are. And I don't think people talked about that. And in particular in my life, when I was studying with, with Gatala, he talked about rolling in your chops. Um, and he was, I was, I played in high school. I played a solo in a master class for him. I think it was Willow Echoes, up to all those C's. And I played it well. Um, but one of the things he talked about as an illustration of why I was playing it so well was that my lips were rolled in. And when I got to study with Pete, and I knew, I thought that that was the way I should do it. Um, and it felt like I should do it. But there were times, I remember taking a lesson with Tom Drake at Interlochen um, one summer. And he had he did hear me play every day because our cabins were next door to each other. And if you guys and, don't know Tom, Tom's in the St. Louis Symphony. Terrific player, great teacher. Yeah, Crazy great player, yeah. wonderful guy. And I was playing scales. Um, I played scales every morning and he came by this cabin once and he yelled in the back door, Brian, don't you ever play anything out of tune? <laughs> and so, which was a nice compliment. And I took a lesson with him and we were playing uh, Leonore overture and, um, and I played it and he said, you know, that's really not the, the sound we're really looking for. And uh, he said, play it again. And I played it again several times. He's like, no, it's just, it's kind of bottled up a little bit. And he played it. And he played with this incredibly vibrant, brilliant, clear tone. And I was like, I've never made that sound in my life. <laughs> I like ever. And I, did, I didn't know how to make that sound. I didn't know what was happening. And it wasn't until I went to, I started studying with Pete Bond, retired from the Met. And Pete said, it looks like you're rolling in your lips. And I said, well, yeah, I'm trying to do that, hold everything. And he said, that's death on the trumpet. I was 27 years old. I was doing my doctor. I had no idea. I had made finals of the principal job in Louisville. Um, I had made the finals of the Marine Band like four times. Like, it's crazy that 
you know, you can get that good and do something so wrong. Um, so I found that fascinating. So, so, so. <laughs> I need to interrupt you for just a second. I, oh, John Rommel and I have had the same discussion with students in different ways about this, and, and we agree and put this very similarly. It's like, wow, you know, you've probably gotten it about as good as you can get playing the way you play. Right. Mm. And sometimes that can be really, really good. But then you're eventually, this is, and we've talked about this a little bit here before, but then there, if you're playing in a way that is, for lack of a better term, fundamentally flawed, there is a ceiling. Yeah, exactly. And, you, and it's, you know, obviously, Brian, you know how to play, and you, you know, and being as good musically and as good fundamentally as you are, yeah, sure, you can do really, really well with that. But you had, and Pete, what Pete was telling you at that time is, you've hit the ceiling. Yeah, right. there's it's a not limit. gonna get better than that. Yeah, and it's it's funny, right? The 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 part that was missing, that gap you couldn't close at the very end, was the stuff that you got into finals, right? Of these things, and there's a little yeah. more sparkle in the sound over here, or there's a little more fluidity from this player, and that just you couldn't close the door. Yeah, and then the last thing, the physical last physical thing is, I actually, um, and it deals with articulation and sound. Those two things are, I think, are related. Uh, yeah, no offense, Bill. Um, and that is that the placement of the tongue, especially on notes from G on top of the staff down to low F is critical to the quality of the sound. And then I think that if the tongue is really high and forward, unless the person has like an unusually high arch in the, in the hard palate, um, that I think that's, it's really going to be detrimental to the, to the clarity and brilliance of the tone as you go into the low register. So that the role of the tongue in the quality of sound, not just in range, but in the quality of sound. And then the last one is, when we're doing articulation, I want it to be as much like speaking as possible. So if a student is native Italian or Spanish speaker, their tongue can be naturally more forward and down, the tip especially, and a lot of the articulation is not in the tip of their tongue. It's partway back on the tongue in what we would call anchor tonguing. So I'm perfectly happy to have students anchor tongue like Ray Mace does or Pete or um, Herbert L. Clark. Um, with the tongue in that position, but I'm careful that they're aware of the placement so that the front of the mouth stays pretty open when they play, especially in that in that register. So articulation, I ask students to speak it. It's how we teach multiple tonguing. Um, just say ta, but it's that actual stroke. Like what is the tongue doing? And Bill, Bill, you you explained it really well. You, you said uh, the attack is completely. Um, um, mislabeled, right? And uh, for yeah. someone whose tongue's as little as you, but it's really true. It's <laughs> it's a release, right? It's, it's a release. It's a release. What Thank does you. the tongue after actually do? Ta. It's a release, and it's not a. F the tongue doesn't come forward. Go ta. It's it, it goes back, back or right. down. It yeah. opens up, right? When you say ta, what is the actual motion of the tongue? Backward. Isn't it both? To say Wait. ta, it has to come forward before it comes back. Well, it does come forward before it comes back, but the actual there's no sound before the the stroke of the T. So if it's right, no, so the, the, but, the, the articulation I, I actually argue that, that we have to talk about the entire motion. So it's not just a backwards motion; it's both. Correct, and I would say that and uh, that articulation is from the vowel back to the vowel. But so if it's but if it's the initial note, there is no forward. You're going to put it there to start. And then pull it away. Well, you breathe oh, first, good. right? Uh, 
you're you you tongue. breathe with your tongue where it attacks? No, no you, you or you go. Nobody right. wants that. No, I don't do that. But I think there's a need to think about it. Everybody's thinking about their tongue. But I would say right. when 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 somebody says ah ta, what that's the Jacobs thing, right? Ah ta, breathe in ah, say ta. That's all you have to do. It's not more complicated than that. I illustrate a lot of my students are thinking where the tongue is hitting, how it's hitting, how fast it is, where it's moving. And I'm saying, can you say football? And they say football. And I say, you didn't say baseball. But when you didn't say baseball, were you thinking about every motion of the tongue and how that how it's moving in the mouth to enunciate the word football? They say no. And I said, it's because it's a mental signal. The tongue will do what you ask it to do if you send it the signal. So if you're playing and you're multiple tonguing, you're not thinking about the rocking motion of T's and K's. You're speaking T's and K's or D's and G's or whatever it is you develop. Um, so that's the last part is the, the pl- roll of the tongue and how we think about it in articulation and where it is in terms of sound. Um, so I also think that the Talent Code is a super important book for people. So Inner Game of Tennis, if you have to read two books on trumpet playing, <laughs> read The Inner Game of Tennis and The Talent Code. Questions? So, well, I want to go back if we go could. I, I know Joey took notes too because I always I see him taking notes. I took a bunch. <laughs> is Carter Eggers... Your first teacher is still alive or still around? Yes, he's still alive. He just recently retired from from Eastern Michigan. I, I have went lots back, of questions. I went back <laughs> and did a, <laughs> I went back and did a master class at Eastern Michigan, and I talked about all these things, and he was like, "Holy smokes, this is the same thing I've been talking about for nearly fifty right. years, and it's so much more developed." Right. And um, so it is. It is a pretty developed, I think. That's cool. That was just a personal idea. thing I thought yeah. of. But the idea itself um, of dealing with all these things away from the technical aspects of it, I love this idea. Um, I may have said this before in here, too. I, I formulated a question one time for Keith, because Keith Johnson would go the distance not to talk about something physical and technical. Right. And I formulated a question to ask him one time that could only have a technical answer, and he dodged me. But I was ready. <laughs> I had, in my head was ready to go again. I asked it and he said, I know what you're doing and I'm not going to answer your question because <laughs> you shouldn't be thinking about it that way. So I, I love the idea of that. Joey's so chomping at the bit though. I'm going to give him a chance to get in here. He's got a list. I no, can tell. I mean, obviously I, I like hearing all of that. It's great stuff. And I think we agree in, in the big picture of, of on almost all of this stuff. And we've talked a lot about this stuff over the, over the years, the idea of, Yes, when we're performing, the best idea is focus on the outcome and focus on what you want it to sound like. And even in practice, that's what the musical practice is. But there are actually physical things that need to be addressed. And yes. so, yeah, you do have to make that balance. And you're, I, and we agree. You're doing the same thing uh, in concept. I want to talk to you about audiation. This was the biggest thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah, right. So when we're talking about uh, audiation, you're literally, you're thinking about like, how would you sing this or you're singing it in your head, right? That's yes. What, that's, a, that's what I'm doing. Right. And that's I'm all I'm asking. That's yeah, all I'm asking. that's that's what I'm doing. What about things you can't sing? Because I'm going to tell you just just from my background, like when I got to college, you know, there's I, I heard all of these things about, hey, listen, if you can't sing it, you can't play it. And I thought, that's not true. <laughs> no, I that's not true at all. I can't sing anything and I can read and play stuff. I have no idea what it's going to sound like until after I play it and go, oh, that's what that sounds like because I know how to play the trumpet. But. So what I'm what I'm asking is like so if you're looking thinking like cornet solos let's take something like Napoli 
Right? Yeah. So when you think about those jumps, right? Yes. I, I can't sing those. Yeah, I think I think there's a this is the fine point. When I'm audiating, and I've had the same sort of training, and I've studied, did some of my undergraduate music ed stuff with a disciple of Gordon. Yeah. Audiation to me is not singing. I can look at a score, and I'll do audiation with a score. Where I'll look down and I'll hear. I I hear what I see, but I don't necessarily have to relate it to singing because I'm not a good singer. And I can't, I don't want to be limited by that or be it's like, I don't want to be limited sitting at the keyboard because I'm not good at that either. And it's exactly the limitations I'm asking about both in right for, for range intervals or technique. You know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, like any kind of cornet solo, by the time we get to the last variation, I, I can't sing those. No. And I don't think audiation for me anyway, audiation is not singing. So if I was really trying to literally sing those in my head, I think I'm going to get wrapped up into an extra step that's going to make it harder for me, not easier. Yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine what it would sound like if I was singing it. I don't actually have to physically sing it. Although somebody like Tom can actually sing at the speed with the articulation. Right? I think yeah. we could all sort of I, I, imagine, I know there are people that can do that. I'm just saying I'm not one and I, I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. So right. Oh, no, there are lots of people. Yeah. And when you're working with students who are then like, if you tell them, listen, you just need to sing this in your head. And then they're like locked up, but they can't play because they can't sing. Right. No, no, there's there's certainly an out for them. And in terms of like even Jason's idea about fast practice and we talk about half fast practice and and slow practice, there's certainly a path for them to still incorporate that idea and let the speed take care of itself or the gymnastics of getting around take care of itself. But you can certainly, um, I can certainly imagine myself singing these leaps. Um, I don't have to hear, be able to sing them. I can't sing, I've lost notes in my falsetto. Um, but certainly being able to sing falsetto has helped and being able to get guys in particular to be able to cross that break and get into the falsetto register, that's a physically different space. And that sometimes will help them from pushing the air. Just that, that idea. That's the interesting concept because I will tell you, uh, when I sing, and I am like like you guys, a terrible singer, uh, but I am not shy about it. I enjoy singing. Right? Yeah. But yeah. I will always sing whatever the top line is. And um <laughs> I have been I have been mocked a lot saying, you know, that's not the melody. I'm like, well, it's not top line. It's got to be. So I've never had a problem. <laughs> it's the most important to the, one right, to the to the falsetto and singing the top lines and singing the higher parts. That's, you know, uh, maybe that's that helps me that way. But I certainly have never had any problems in the falsetto. I'm certainly not a good singer. That's not what I'm saying. But I can I, I have not even had that problem at all. Yeah. So here my problem with. I love audiation idea. I love that. I do it. But I don't like the singing thing for this reason, especially if you're not a trained singer. I think it engages a part of your body that you would not engage when you're playing. Oh, interesting. In other words, if I start to think about singing and shaping a sound and shaping that internally in my throat, I'm all sorts of sideways with playing the trumpet. Because I want to disengage all that. I yeah, that's a great go. point. So for me, it's placement. I don't actually think about the throat and where this, and I don't think singers do either. They're trying to do everything out in front or at the top of their head. Yeah. Right. Sending right. it out their forehead. That sort of, and they're thinking about resonance, which we do too. Yeah. Because I think when it's working well, it feels like 
you know, belly button to mouthpiece or belly button to bell. It feels you know like you're I mean? not doing anything. But no, it's, it's just. It's, but it's the same thing with singers. I played a lot of uh, of singer recitals when I was an undergrad. Um, so uh, there's a woman named Janda Gaetani who's a very world famous soprano and singer. And I, I was in her master class enough where she knew my name and would say, there was once where she said, um, did these ladies know what you have to deal with and plan with them? <laughs> Would you talk to them a little? Because there was a lot of piccolo trumpet and soprano things. And you got to watch balance. And I'm like, I, uh, 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 but I was in a lot. So I got to hear a lot of these things. And the first time I heard, you know, like have the sound coming out of your forehead, I'm like, these people are crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but when you watch it, it, they're looking for the same exact thing we're looking for, which is the ease of production with the, the best result. And a, a lot of what you're talking about here of combining that okay here's technically what you have to do to build that so that when you get to music you forget all of that and concentrate on the outcome yeah it is is great absolutely great advice the idea you know i i up at birch creek I've, i'm sure i've said this before we literally play in a barn and so i'm on the back of the stage and there's an exit sign pretty much right at bell level at the back of the barn and when kids have said like you know how do you think what do you conceive and i said oh after my first year here, what I realized is I'm playing right at that exit sign. Like and, that's the concept. And after body center, breathe and flow, you now take the air from that exit sign and put it back on it. <laughs> right. Exactly. You, you acquire the target. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think this is Brian, where you're going, right? You're dealing with, you're trying to get outside of yourself. You're trying to get outside the body and get past all these physical things. Yeah, this is why reading those books you're talking about, reading the inner game of tennis. There yeah. is an inner game of music. It's not as good. Just read the inner game of, uh, of tennis. It'll make a lot more sense. Uh, and even Zen of the Art of Mo Motorcycle Maintenance is a little more uh, philosophical, a little more step away, but still yeah. great, great, great book. And it was difficult for an eighth grader to read to make it through <laughs> that yeah. book. I was like, man, this is really out. Yeah. Right, but um, if you can get to that headspace, the headspace of, especially when you're thinking about the end goal of performance, when yeah. you step up there, there's really only one thing you should be thinking about, which is, here here it goes. Here's what I want this to sound like. This is going to sound this way. Yeah, I will say this about the singing thing. This is interesting because I, I don't think about myself singing it, yet I am inspired by certain singers whose voice... Whose voices I think are really crazy good. Like, and there's a couple of weird ones here, but Jennifer Nettles from uh, Sugarland, which is country music, man, <laughs> pipes, right? Like, which yeah, sure. cuts loose on something, man. It's like, yes, that's that pure core sound, and she's just, you know, just laying it out there. There's some others, you know, over the years that I thought have been great voices. Patty Smythe. Boy, I'm going back now. Some 80s. <laughs> I, I, stuff I, did there. A, I did a Pops concert with Cincinnati. They brought in Jennifer Holiday, who oh, was the, yeah. in the original yeah. uh, Broadway cast of Dream Girls. And it was basically we were just doing a big giant uh, Dream Girls show. And hearing that, and I, I love that musical. It's one of my favorite musicals to play. But to hear her on stage, like in the rehearsal, I'm just on the back of the stage going, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it was just uh, absolutely spectacular. So I, I think accessing that quality of sound or great Nicola Benedetti's violin playing is phenomenal, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. the way that the sound resonates and is generated and is linear and connected, all those things influence. Um, yeah, I think that's all great. I, I want to, unless you want to talk more about the singing aspect, I, I have no, one go I want to go to. I, no. Okay. So uh, I'm Brian, I'm just glad you brought this up because this is really, really important. This concept of, breaking and changing defaults 
You said yes. breaking defaults, but to me, yeah, like just changing to creating a new default is a huge part of what we do because students, and I think a lot of it's the visual stimulus of what's on the page, right? Oh, that's an A above the staff. I know what I got to do to do that. <laughs> yes. Right. Grip it and rip it. Um, yeah, we, we spend a lot of time and I think there's musical and physical defaults that need to be overcome. And I think it's super important to direct students what to do, where to focus their attention rather than what not to do. You can't. Like, yeah. It's That's brutal fine. to don't do that. Uh, okay. Don't. That's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's gotta be stated in the positive. Yeah. Yeah. For the next 10 seconds, don't think about a polar bear. <laughs> Exactly. Go ahead. Go ahead. They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> There's one on my head. <laughs> yeah. right, so, so let me let me ask you this because I think this gets to the hard part of, of what all of us do, right? So we want everybody to get to the place of all I want you focused on is the outcome, and so that everything else will take care of itself. Now, we've talked about this in the past, and there are trumpet teachers out there that literally teach exactly that and only that. Hey. Don't worry about technique. It'll all take care of itself, which we know isn't universally true. There are people with real technical issues and real physical issues that need to be addressed directly. Yes. So, how do you get the switch? Like, how do you how do you get that student to get through that and then say, all right, you've done it. Now let go. Yeah. So um, so a big part of this, I think, is getting a student to play with the uh, a sound that I find really attractive, which is a very clear, almost brilliant sound um, with no air or dullness in it. Um, and I think this, I think it's really important. And we do that a whole bunch of different ways um, with attention to the physical, like your bottom lips tight, your chop lips tight, you're blowing too hard, your tongue's in the wrong position. You might be pressing like we do. We go round and round on notes that are innocuous so from like c to g just low c to g um and so we get them sort of used to this tone this change tone quality so we change their ears what they're hearing um and then um it's a pretty easy leap for them to go well that's this kind of feel and that's this kind of sound now we're going to in a very systematic way apply that to the rest of the instrument um and that process um because when you're in an ensemble, you can't hear yourself, right? So you could be playing the way you think you're supposed to be playing, but you can't really hear yourself. So you, there is a physical awareness that has to happen, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, you can't hear yourself if you're standing next to you. <laughs> I, that's where how, I... How would, how would you know you can't hear yourself in an yeah. ensemble? Well, I can always hear myself. <laughs> Everyone can hear yourself. But normal yeah. people. <laughs> so yeah, are that's you good. are you using a real decibel meter to make sure they're doing what you want in the lessons? <laughs> right. You know, listen, it's nice, but it's not nearly loud enough. We're not all the way to jet engine yet. Yeah, right. we're you only have to crank that up. We're only at rock concert, and I'm going to need more out of you. <laughs> Well, well I, Joey, when the first time we met, when we were, you said you talked about that when we were doing the Vern Reynolds was the that second movement and that plan coming in on the high F, mm -hmm. and or just the F, not the high F, the F on top of the staff, really softly, and you were like, "What is you know?" Yeah, it was gorgeous. That's really right cool. Down, yeah, it was right down the middle. Yeah, so mm. it is on the soft. I can play on the soft side. I do like to play loud though. 
I, the way I'm thinking about this, Brian, or the way I try to do, like breaking these defaults, I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about. We're trying to get them to a place where they're making the sound that we want. And then so you provide successes for young players that then they can reference. I mean, this is the issue, right? Sure. They've always played it this way. Mm-hmm. So once you build the awareness of this and is they're what they're happy it's, with the way they play and they like the way they play <laughs> always it. I played first chair in my band. Of course, I'm happy with the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but providing that, you know, on a large scale, so on a micro scale, you know, like you're you're looking at playing this note the way I want it to sound and getting all the brilliance and resonance and all that. And then we start to open that up. But we do the same thing with rap. Right. We put something over the plate that they can build the success of sounding that way. And then we work our way out to mm-hmm. Beach and Tomasi and whatever else. So. I think, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I want to talk about this concept of that you mentioned about the overactivation of muscles not needed in the process. I love this idea, right? That because you over-engage this whole idea of here we go, I'm going in guys, breath support, please (laughs) stop saying breath support. It's, I, I, I can't even finish. (laughs) But well, use your that, use your diaphragm, right? Yeah. Involuntary <laughs> muscle. Oh, gosh, there it is. Oh, yeah. Breathe. for No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. It should be uh, there should be a series of fines for just saying it anyway. But this idea that I mean, there is a beautiful way to think about it, right? If you engage that, then these other muscles are going to go, hey, party, let's go. <laughs> and then right. before you know it, right, you're just yeah. locked up. You're locked up. It's yeah, a super exactly. spreader event. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then that's the way you think you play. And that's and the way you think you pl- you sound. And you also think it's the only way to make those things come out. Yes. And mm-hmm. that's what you were talking about before, which is vital. Like, especially you're talking about when we're talking about either to play high or low or loud or soft, that the only way I can do that is to change the default way I play to make this happen. And then if you have any kind of success, you're like, okay, that's how this works. And it's absolutely uh, false. And that's right. how it'll work for everybody. So that's the way I'll teach it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think to recap, what you're saying is don't think about the trumpet when you're playing the trumpet. Switch to the pistol grip for high notes <laughs> and uh, engage as many muscles as possible. And, and tighter when you, tighter's better. Tighter's better. <laughs> if you and if you want to learn a lot about breath support, you should go to Rowan. That's, that's right. all about the air. I that's, mean, that's what we're the title of. I, I'm going to retitle this episode. It's all about the air. It's all about the air. <laughs> it's amazing, and you, you know. And you know, we've talked about this before, and I'm glad you hit on it again because it bears repeating. That people, there's so much. Oh, just it's the air. It's the air. It's the air. It's the air. Look inside your mouthpiece. Uh, you know, look at the <laughs> hole at the bottom of the cup of your mouthpiece. It's just not that big. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But this is great. I mean, I, we all, again, Brian, you know, you, I know you're tailoring this to each individual student, but ultimately the overarching concepts are there, right? And then you're just, you know, like, all, like the rest of us, these are the things that we think are important, right? And then you're tailoring it to each one of those students, which yeah, is great. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's great to finally get inside your head to think about what we <laughs> need to do to play as loudly as you do. Joey, this is helpful, isn't it? Very. I'm just trying. I don't know about you. I just sat back and thought, how does he play that loudly? I, I think this uh, this time together has added at least ten decibels to my play. <laughs> I can't wait actually to get to my horn. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go out in the garage to try some meter. <laughs> we lost you there for a second, Brian. What was that? 
the, the, the meter, the decibel meter is logarithmic, right? Yeah, oh, there it is. <laughs> so, 10 decibels is a lot. <laughs> oh, well, it's time now for No Offense. Today's topic, giving no thought to your own pedagogy or your own set of trumpet non-negotiables is not okay. Beg, borrow, and steal, but figure it out. Consider this homework, right? So now the three of us have all kind of shared what was some things that we thought were important. So you can consider this episode homework. Spend some time thinking about what is important, writing it down, prioritizing it. What is important to you and your students in your own pedagogy? Am I right here? No oh, offense, yeah. but come on, you got to give this some thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, uh, we're, uh, as we've discussed here before, we're all a product of, of our own environments and our own teachers growing up. That's not to say that we're clones. We've each given this some thought uh, as to say, this is what's important to me, and it might be slightly different than, than what my teacher has given to me or presented in a slightly different way or focused in slightly different areas. And we're not saying... We're the, we have all of the answers. We do think we're good at what we do, at what we do. But that's not to say that the, ours is the only way. This is something we're going to have to talk about on a later episode. There's not only one way to do all of these things. That's why we end right. up talking mostly in concepts. Mm -hmm. So if you think, hey, listen, I've got something. It may not be exactly what everybody else says, but I think this stuff is, is real and it works. Stake your ground. Plant your flag. Yeah. Give some thought to it. Absolutely right. Stand for something or you stand for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Or at least give some credit to somebody who gave you that, <laughs> the yeah. idea, right? Yeah. If you're using all their stuff, you should give Foot them notes give are them welcome. Credit. <laughs> and we've all been teaching long enough, or, you know, that we, you start to collect these stories. That's how you figure out, you know, you, you've seen it before. So you know how to fix it, you know, but ultimately, you know what's important yeah. and what, what needs to be done. Well, listen, that about does it for today. Thanks for joining us on The Open Bell. Stay tuned, subscribe, tell your friends, and keep your eyes out on the website for that WTF merch. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell.